0: Have your Bibles and encourage you to turn to the book of Jonah. We're going to continue our series in this short book. Jonah is a biographical account of a man who is deeply religious, but is far from God. A man who's deeply religious but uh, possesses some uh, destructive attitudes and conducts himself in some destructive ways and ultimately results in a man who is deeply out of touch with the mission of God we have looked at the first two chapters we're going to pick it up today in chapter three then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh now Nineveh was a very large city It took three days to go through it And how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Today, the camera angle of the story changes a little bit from leering into Jonah's world into looking at this whole thing from the perspective of God's grace. God's relentless grace is the major theme of chapter 3. And today we're going to consider these points. We're going to look at what God's grace offers, who God's grace pursues, and how God's grace affects change. What God's grace offers, who God's grace pursues, how God's grace affects change. First, what God's grace offers. There are a couple of things that we see from the text that God's grace offers. First of all, it offers people multiple opportunities to be involved in God's kingdom-building work. Now, in chapter 1, when we looked at Jonah, we made note of the fact that this guy has in his head a category reserved for those people. Because he has diminished his own sin and underappreciated God's grace, he's looking down his nose at the nearby Ninevites. In chapter 2, after the story of the storm and the fish, and we looked at the details of Jonah's prayer in chapter 2, and we made note that this is not really a prayer of genuine confession and repentance, primarily because there's something conspicuously missing from the prayer any mention of his disobedience. Not a word of it. So we look at that and we conclude probably this is not a genuine prayer of repentance. So we get through these first two chapters. Maybe we wouldn't mind God moving on from Jonah and finding someone else to do the job. If we're honest with ourselves, maybe we look at Jonah and we think, okay, God, how, how many shots are you going to give this guy? This is one of the things that makes God's grace so relentless. Verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. A second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. God's grace offers spiritually wobbly people multiple opportunities to be involved in God's kingdom building work. And that's good news for us. God is using here a deeply flawed man to bring about extraordinary change in the lives of the Ninevites. I'm encouraged by that. This past week, maybe we did something we shouldn't have. We said something that we shouldn't have. We thought something we shouldn't have. We looked at something we shouldn't have. God is not done with you on account of that. God's not going to wash his hands of you on account of that. His grace is relentless. Here we have God using a man who is deeply, deeply flawed to be an instrument to bring about extraordinary change in the lives of people. That's an encouragement to me. Now, why does God insist on sticking with Jonah? Why does God insist on Jonah being the one to carry this message to the Ninevites? I think it's the same reason God sticks with us in spite of our weekly, daily failings. He continues to use us in ministry. How many of us are involved in ministry in some way? And yet we have undoubtedly failed God this past week. Why does he continue to stick with us? Well, by doing it this way, I think we avoid the error of thinking it was the health, capacity, or skill set that the messenger that brought about these incredible results. So think, think about it this way. If Jonah was a spiritual superstar, rock solid in every area of his life, and that was the Jonah that went into Nineveh to preach to the Ninevites, and then this thing, this success broke loose in Nineveh of, of, of people coming to, to faith, we might be tempted to give more credit, more attention to the messenger than is due him. In other words, Jonah's goodness could actually distract from God being the hero of this story. Nobody but God can take credit for what's taken place in Nineveh. There is no doubt about that. It is God and God alone who has done this work in Nineveh. And that's true in our lives today. It's true in our church. Anything good that happens in a church, through a church, isn't because of the incredible skill set, capacity, whatever, of the people. That's hogwash. Anything good that happens in a church or through a church is only by God's grace and God's grace alone. Francis Schaeffer perhaps put it best when he said, we are not building God's kingdom. We are not building God's kingdom. God is building his kingdom. And we are praying for the privilege of being involved. God's grace offers multiple opportunities to be involved in God's kingdom building efforts. The second thing that God's grace offers is the opportunity to know God better through reluctant obedience. God's not done with Jonah. He sticks with Jonah even in spite of his very recent past and the attitudes and his heart condition that's been revealed through it. Now, does that mean God condones Jonah's behaviors? No, not at all. So why do you insist God on continuing to use Jonah? Why not use somebody else? Well, maybe it's not just about what God wants to do for the Ninevites. Maybe it's also about what God wants to do for Jonah. Let's think about where Jonah may be mentally and emotionally at this moment. You've been vomited out onto dry land, still possessing a superiority complex towards the Ninevites. God comes to you and gives you the very same command you heard in chapter 1. What are you thinking? If you're Jonah, what are you thinking? I'll tell you what I think you're thinking. You know what that feels like? When I hear those words coming out of God's mouth, and I realize it's the same thing he told me in chapter 1. You know what that feels like? It feels like Sunday night when I have to go to school Monday morning. It's Sunday night when I have to go to a job Monday morning that I really can't stand. This sick, ugh, feeling. And yet you know there's no way around it. The alarm is going to ring the next morning. You're going to have to get yourself out of bed. You're going to have to head off to school. you have to head off to work. And you're going to head off to school, you're going to head off to work, like you're heading off to your first root canal. Jonah is not singing, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work, I go. Sometimes what God wants you to do and what you feel like doing are not the same thing. That's a tough pill to swallow for 21st century Americans. We are tempted to make our emotions infallible. Feelings are not infallible. Just because I feel a certain way doesn't mean I'm justified to feel that way. God wants Jonah to obey even though he doesn't feel like it. Why? I think there are a couple of reasons why. God is going to use Jonah's reluctant obedience to expose the idolatry of his own heart. And God's going to use Jonah's reluctant obedience to demonstrate to Jonah the kind of God he is. An accurate picture of the kind of God he is. One that Jonah does not yet possess. In other words, if Jonah obeys, even though reluctantly, Jonah may actually grow in his understanding of who God really is, not the image he has of him already in his head. So we are faced probably on a weekly basis of Knowing what God wants us to do, but not feeling like doing that. How many of us struggle to obey Jesus' command to forgive? But because we don't feel like doing so, we don't. How many of us struggle to obey Jesus' command to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, but because we don't feel like it, we don't. It's in those moments when what we ought to do and what we feel like doing will actually reveal who our true master is. Will my emotions be my master today? Or will God be my master today? God wants us in those moments to choose to obey him even though we don't feel like doing so because there are two things he's trying to get across to us. He's trying to expose the idolatry in our own hearts and he's trying to correct the misperceptions we have about who he is. God's grace offers religious rebels the opportunity to know God better through reluctant obedience. Second, who God's grace pursues So not only has God's grace not given up on Jonah, it's not given up on the Ninevites either. Now, God doesn't want to show compassion to the Ninevites because they're a sweet, lovable, fuzzball people. That's not why God God wants to show them grace and compassion. He doesn't want to show them grace and compassion because they're lovely people. Here's how history records the character of the Assyrian Empire, written by one of the kings just before Jonah's time. He writes this, I caused great slaughter, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. Many of the captives I burned in a fire, many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the wrist. From others I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. I burned their young men and women to death. And this particular Assyrian king goes on from there getting more graphic than that. So, armed with this info, suddenly the Ninevites are no longer this innocent racial minority living next door. Jonah would have been well versed in their history, he would have known something about them. It's not a stretch then to say that they were the Isis of Jonah's time. And Jonah despised the thought of them receiving God's compassion this is where I begin to see the Jonah in me how would I feel about God relenting from destroying Isis would we be okay with God demonstrating compassion or would such actions throw us into a tizzy now what would cause me to have a problem with God showing Isis compassion well I'm honest, deep down, I don't believe they deserve God's grace when you get down to it. Their atrocities deserve to be met with swift justice, but the moment I've said that they don't deserve God's grace, I'm simultaneously saying God's grace is earned. If God's grace is earned, it's actually no longer grace. Grace is a gift, So if there are people that I don't believe are deserving of God's grace, I'm implying people qualify for God's grace by contributing some measure of goodness to the whole equation. But Jesus himself said, no one is good except God alone. No one is good except God alone. The moment Jesus said those words, we have something in common with the Ninevites. We have something in common with ISIS. None of us are good. G.K. Chesterton was a devout Christian and one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. The Times, which is a nationally published newspaper in the UK, invited at one point several authors to write essays on a theme. The theme was... What's wrong with the world? Chesterton's contribution in answer to this question took the form of a letter. He wrote Dear sirs, I am sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with our world? Jonah would have said the Ninevites are. We might say Isis is. But if we take Jesus' words seriously, we would say, I am what's wrong with the world. Because no one is good except God alone. In chapter 3, God's grace is pursuing both Jonah and the Ninevites. God's grace is pursuing all those who fit into the not good category. that's good news. Third, how God's grace affects change. I don't know for sure, but sometimes I wonder if our mental picture of God's grace is something that's soft and warm and cuddly. When you picture God's grace, it's it's a little bit like the baby in the nursery, in the hospital, you know, cuddle, you know, swaddled up, and, and all the babies are there, and we're on the other side of the glass, just ogling these precious babies, and and that's the picture of God's grace. But God's grace doesn't always come to us in pleasurable forms. <laughs> God's grace doesn't come to the Ninevites in a pleasurable form. It doesn't come to them in a politically correct form. When God came to Jonah he said, "Go to the great city and proclaim to it the message I give you." Literally, it's call out against it. Jonah go call out against the Ninevites. And then he gives him his topic. Here's your sermon title. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's your topic. Jonah is to call out against Nineveh a message of judgment. So he does. He obeys. However reluctantly he obeys. And it has the intended effect. The text says, and the people of Nineveh believed God and they called for a fast Put on sackcloth, from the greatest to the least of them. The The message to the Ninevites was one of judgment. And what's the heart motivation God's trying to appeal to? Fear. Fear. God's message to the Ninevites is a message of judgment designed to create fear. Now think about that. How popular is that method in 21st century America? A message of judgment designed to create fear. It's popular within some strands of American evangelicalism. But it's, it's very unpopular within other strands of American evangelicalism. And I would weigh in that, by and large, they both have it wrong. Let's take, first of all, those who would say, uh, God's judgment designed to create fear, that message, is something that we should avoid. Maybe, maybe you're in that spot. Maybe you would look at, at this, this idea of preaching God's judgment as a way to create fear in people is something that we shouldn't employ in 21st century America Um, I would respectfully push back on that just a little bit There there was someone else who used this tactic there was someone else who used the tactic of preaching judgment as a way to instill fear in the hearers and that was Jesus himself Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 Jesus says and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell this is Jesus himself. The message of judgment designed to create fear. Matthew 22, Jesus does it again. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. These are messages of God's judgment designed to instill fear in Jesus' hearers, to bring about repentance, to bring about spiritual vigilance. Even Jesus used this method, so we're wrong to avoid it. Interestingly enough, it was an atheist who made the strongest case for this tactic. The atheist illusionist, Penn Gillett once said, I don't respect Christians, people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Here's an atheist Saying to Christians, if you believe judgment is coming, you're hateful not to say something about it. We're wrong to avoid talking about the judgment to come. On the other hand, the prototypical fire and brimstone preachers in churches also have it wrong. My wife spent some of her growing up years in a church like this. Why? In large measure, in large measure, they fail to preach the judgment passages in the context of the sweep of salvation history. Judgment passages don't occur in a vacuum. They point to something. They're embedded within a larger story, a larger story Jonah did not have at his time, but we do. Judgment passages ultimately point to the cross of Jesus Christ and the hope that's found through it. Jesus experienced hell. He was cast into the outer darkness. He went through the weeping of gnashing of teeth. Why? For you in your place We don't hear that often from the prototypical fire and brimstone preachers. Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice, wherein he faces the full brunt of God's judgment in our place, is often left out. Now, God's judgment of sin is real and it's severe, and we're meant to feel the fear of that. Because only then will the cross of Christ shine brilliantly in our hearts. Mike Ovi put it this way. He says, Scripture magnifies God's love by its refusal to diminish our plight as sinners deserving of God's wrath. If you dull the sharp edges of sin and God's justice against it, his grace and love will no longer be amazing. question I'm trying to answer is how does God's grace affect change? God's grace affects change in us by plunging us into the depths of fear over our sin and God's wrath against it and then through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus bringing us to the heights of hope. That's how God's grace affects change. One of the chief catalysts that God used in the Great Awakening here in the U.S. in the 1700s was Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Edwards was a pastor of a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. When he took it over from his uncle, Solomon Stoddard, the church was about 300 people. Um, God grew that church to 1,300 people through the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. And Edwards was privileged to be able to see so many people come to faith during this time of revival. And and as this was unfolding, he wrote about it. He wrote about all he saw and observed and experienced during this time of revival, and it's recorded in a little book called The Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And in this book, one of the conversions that he talks about is is a conversion of a woman named Abigail Hutchinson. Abigail, in the town, was known as kind of as a goody-two-shoes. And there was another woman in town who was clearly not a goody two-shoes who had come to faith in Christ. She had received God's grace and God's mercy and Abigail had all sorts of problems with this. She did not like the idea that this woman could be the recipient of something so great. And so Abigail was determined to do something about it. She started reading the Bible from beginning to end. While she was doing this, something happened. Edwards describes it in his own words this way And there was a sudden alteration by a great increase of her concern in an extraordinary sense of her own sinfulness, particularly the sinfulness of her nature and the wickedness of her heart. This came upon her, as she expressed it, as a flash of lightning. And struck her into an exceeding terror, upon which she left off reading the Bible in course as she had begun and turned to the New Testament to see if there could not, she could not find some relief for her distressed soul. Her great terror, as she said, was that she had sinned against God. Her distress grew more and more for three days until she saw nothing but blackness of darkness before her, and her very flesh trembled for fear of God's wrath. A few days later, Edwards writes this. As she awakened on Monday morning, a little before day, she wondered within herself at the easiness and calmness she felt in her mind, which was of a kind she never felt before. As she thought of this, such words as these were in her mind. The words of the Lord are pure words, health to the soul and marrow to the bones. And then these words, the blood of Christ cleansed from all sin which were accompanied with a lively sense of the excellency of Christ and his sufficiency to satisfy for the sins of the whole world. By these things, her mind was led into such contemplations and views of Christ as filled her exceeding full of joy. Abigail Hutchinson's story is a case study in how God's grace affects change. She was plunged into the depths of despair over her own sinfulness and her own wicked heart. But through the gospel of Jesus Christ, she was brought to the heights of hope because the blood of Christ had cleansed her from the very thing that had become the source of her terror. May this be true of us you bow your heads? Close your eyes. With the number of people who will be here this morning, I know we're going to have someone just like Abigail in our midst. Someone who's been morally good, but who hasn't truly come to terms with their sinfulness, nor what God has done about it through Christ. This is is the opportunity. This is the great opportunity to ask God to do something with you, in you, on you, to ask God to show you what your sin looks like through his eyes. No matter how morally clean we've been, our sin is replete, and it is, as Abigail describes it, blackness and darkness. But in God's great love and mercy, he sent Jesus be the recipient of the penalty for our sin so that those who trust him will be saved on the last day maybe this moment is the moment God makes this click for you if so participating in the Lord's Supper is the best next thing to be a part of gracious God I pray that you would show us how generously you have lavished your grace upon us. We merit absolutely nothing, but you have poured out your love for us abundantly by sending Jesus to live a perfect life for us and in our place die the death we rightly deserved. As this picture of your grace comes into focus, God, I pray that you would draw us closer to yourself. So that we may rest in your loving arms as adopted children of the King. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Once again, Lord, your word has given us a glimpse into the true nature of our hearts and their flawed condition. But in spite of that, your lavish love and grace, which has overcome all of that. I pray that the joy of this salvation that we have through the work of Christ would run deep and that our life's response would be one of adoration and praise to you. We ask it to the glory of Jesus' name alone. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And God's people said, Amen.